so excited to be able to share. It's going to be uh, basically my story, uh, a little bit about myself before we really get started. Uh, I was actually born in Waco, 1951. Uh, at that time, we only had, I think, about one hospital, but anyway, <laughs> I was born at Providence Hospital and uh, went to school in East Waco. Uh, my whole 12 years, and then I graduated in 1969 and 1970. I left Waco and went to Dallas, and I was in Dallas for 35 years. Came back to Waco in 04, and still here. Uh, so I have those 35 years that I had to really talk to my grandmother. She's passed in 2013, but heard a lot from her, and even in doing, and when Slim asked me to do this, I went and found some even older people that are still living and wanted to make sure that some of the things that I had heard and some of the things that I had read were really true facts about East Waco. But I'll start out by saying that as a young um, African-American growing up in East Waco, I was very proud of my community. Uh, unlike the kids that I see every day at the school where I am the family support specialist, um, I was very proud to live in East Waco. Um, I, I got a good education in East Waco. Uh, our communities were intact, and we'll talk a lot more about that as we talk about the history. Um, my grandparents were my guardians at the time. My mother and father were in the process of getting a divorce when I was born, but my grandparents raised me. And before we moved to East Waco, we lived uh, in North Waco, right across the bridge, right across the river. The river was always a dividing point in Waco, and it still seems to be to some, some point that dividing factor. Uh, when we were small, um, we very seldom went across the river. And, and the, uh, my grandparents always said, well, we just stay on this side of the river. You know, we never really knew why, but we did. We stayed on the east side of the river. And it's really not east and west for me, y'all. It's kind of, Waco is kind of weird. And if you've been here long enough, you know what I'm talking about. You know, what they call northeast, south, and west is not northeast, south, and west. You know, so, but anyway, on the east side of the river. And we used to say, okay, Dallas Street, which is right here, Dallas Street was where the bridge ended for us. Okay, so Dallas Street, if you went down Dallas Street and then over the bridge, you were on the other side of town. That's what they call the other side of town. So, so you just know the locations. But we lived in North Waco. And I don't know how many of you know what a shotgun house is, but um, a lot of them are long and narrow, and all the rooms back up behind each other. But in the north side of town, there was a uh, kind of large-sized group of African-Americans living there at that time, but in these shotgun houses. Now, there are nice shotgun houses, don't get me wrong, but you could tell these houses were more blighted, you know, so you knew who lived there and stuff, and so we moved in. East Waco in 1957 when I was six years old. And at that time, that's when East Waco really started booming and moving, and people were moving in. And I'm going to tell you about two um, housing projects in East Waco that happened right after we moved into East Waco. I was in the first grade, so I was going to Carver, G.W. Carver Middle School back then was a first grade school from first to second grade. I mean, I'm sorry, first to twelfth grade. I'm going to find that real quick. Um, it's called Sharondale Edition, which is still, if any of you know where Sharondale is, it's still in East Waco. It's on the other side of Waco Drive and Golston Heights. Then there's Hollywood Edition, and there's also what we call River Oaks. 
River Oaks are those houses that back up to um, MLK, uh, right in front of the river, all those houses in there. They still look pretty nice, but they were built way back when I was a, a, young, a young girl. Uh, so it was like in uh, like the mid-40s, available housing and quality housing for African-Americans in Waco was unheard of in the 40s. So like in the 50s and 60s, um, it's when Sherrindale and, Holly, um, and Hollywood, not Hollywood, uh, Golston Heights uh, additions were put into place. And so there was like 70 houses at that time that were being built and they were, uh, they were built in 1956 and the neighborhood featured more than 70 homes and represented a, a gracious living. So that was the first time that African Americans in this city really began to have what they call quality housing. You hear me say 56. And so right after that, those homes were built, a lot of people started moving into East Waco. You heard me say we moved in in 1957. My grandfather actually built a house in 1957. And the way the community was made and was structured, and I still think about that today when I'm driving up and down the streets, um, Okay, I wish I had some pictures. Um, Sherrindale and Golson Heights. Golson Heights is right, and Sherrindale is right on um, Golson Road. Back if you were coming all the way down Heron to Golston Road, then it's all those houses back over in there. And a lot of those houses are still pretty nice too. But those houses kind of made a, a circle around with the River Oaks around where uh, I actually live right now, which is what they call uh, Carver Park Edition. Carver Park Edition was from Delano Street all the way over to Falkland Lake. And most of you probably know where Falkland is. But all around us in the middle of uh, Carver Park was our teachers, our doctors, our lawyers, all of the educated professionals lived in our community. So as a young girl growing up in the community, I could aspire to be in any one of those because I could see it. I could see it with my own eyes. So where we live basically in Carver Park addiction is from Delano to Faulkner, which where you had all of your blue collar workers. So, you know, they might have been like professional people, but they had jobs. And they worked like for um, General Time Rubber. General Time Rubber was a huge uh, employer back in the day, probably almost the number one and number two employer in Waco for uh, people that were non-professional. Um, that's where the brick is right now. I don't know some of y'all know called Brick Bay with Brick. That's what General Time Rubble was back in the day. So they hired a lot of, you know, not like I said, blue collar workers. And so in that area where all the blue collar workers were, we could really look at, like I said, see all the professionals that were in our community and aspire, you know, to be one of those professionals. Okay, so let's talk about the infrastructure. Because back in the day, that's the thing that I miss so much in East Waco, is <laughs> right, we're right on Am Street. There was an AGB, there were cleaners, yeah, oh yeah, there was AGB on, on Am Street when I was a kid growing up. There also was a Safeway right at the corner of Waco Drive and Garrison, right now it's a church right there, well it was a church, the building is empty right now, but it's right on the corner of Waco Drive and Garrison, that big building there, that used to be a Safeway right when I was a kid. So we had cleaners right there on the corner of where the milk company used to be, there was a huge cleaners. Uh, Compton cleaners, so you know you didn't have to drive all over town to put your clothes in the cleaners. We had uh, all kinds of uh, uh, 
filling stations, I guess gasoline stations, you know, all up and all up and down Waco Drive. Oh. You know, now you have to either. I most time I go over by Baylor to get gas, yeah. but I didn't have to do that when I was a a, a child. We didn't have to do that when I was a child. That you know, gas stations all up and down East Waco, East Waco Drive. Um, so now, when you look at you know where we where we are now, you see how most of the infrastructure you know is gone. The other thing <coughs> is that. Where I live now on Calumet, from like I said, from Delano over to um, Faulkner Lane, Carter Park Addiction. At that time, those houses were built like in the between the 60s and the 70s because of the new additions that I told you about, Sharondale and Hollywood Addition. When those houses were built, then it brought uh, like an influx of people into that community. So while we're talking about that, let's also, we cannot talk about East Waco history without, without talking about Paul Quinn College. You know, Paul Quinn College was once known as the Athens, Athens on, on the Brasses. It's the oldest historically black college in Texas, and a lot of people, I don't know, a lot of people, a lot of people know that. It was named after a Methodist missionary named Paul Quinn, and it was, it was founded in 19, 1981. And, you know, Paul Quinn was really the reason why, at, the schools were very, very uh, academically strong back then because a lot of our teachers came right out of Paul Quinn. As a matter of fact, a lot of my teachers that I had from the first to twelfth grade graduated from Paul Quinn. So let me bring in this point. G.W. Carver Middle School now was a uh, was the school like I tell you where I went to school, and it started too like in the eighteen hundreds, but. Um, First through the 12th grade, very well known in the city, uh, but it was not under Waco ISD, it was under um, La Vega Independent School District back in the day, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, and it was, it opened in, I said 1800, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I mean, it was open, it opened in 1956, and the street that is now J.J. Flewellen back then was called Dripping Springs, and now it's named after J.J. Flewellen, because J.J. Flewellen was the only principal that we had at the school for the whole time I was there. And I was there from 57 to 69. And so um, the initial enrollment was like 500, and it was grades 1 to 12, like I said. But it grew quickly by 1962 to 1,200 students. Um, and this is the thing that a lot of people don't know. And uh, in 1967, we had a marching band and was under the direction of our band director, uh, Robert E. Lee. Uh, Carver went to Montreal to the World's Fair and won first place. And so, you know, everything at that school was really good and successful when I was a kid going there. So I tell people I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy to be back there now, but I just wish the kids that are there now had the same type of education and the same type of uh, love, you know, that I had as a, as a child growing up in that community. Uh, so in 1970, that's when I left. But 69 was the last year that they actually had school at Carver. Uh, in 70, they integrated. That school was closed and they moved kids all across town. Um, here's, and here's my take on that. And this is, this is my perspective, guys. This is not something that I've read or anything like that. Uh, I still talk about that because when people ask me about integration, how do I feel about it? And I told them, I said, you know what? We were not asking to leave our schools. 
we were not asking to go to another side of town. We were just asking to have the right textbooks, more equipment in our laboratories, you know, the same type of things that the other schools in the city had. We were not asking to leave our culture, you know, and we don't have a problem being other places, but, you know, it really was a hard time because think about this marching band that had gone all the way to Montreal, you know, who gotten this world, you know, world, you know, uh, recognition. And then this marching band is disseminated and is sent across town to other schools who are not playing the same music, who are not marching the same, you know, beat. And, and it never happened. I mean, kids, never, some of them never played again. So what we see that, that happened, we lost a lot of our cultural, you know, uh, things when we integrated. And then besides that, was a lot of stuff going on at that time, you know, kids dropping out of school, kids, a lot of fights, and so I was gone, but, you know, I did keep up with a lot of it, you know, because I had friends, I didn't have family here, because my sister said I already gone to the house, it's like, we left, and so when you look at the community from that standpoint, it's when we started really seeing the decline, especially on that side of Wickle Drive, um, because as, as, as people start going to other schools, our teachers started moving because, you know, they were moving to where they were teaching, you know. So you lose your income base. People, you know, like I said, at one time, East Waco had more home ownership than any area in Waco. Waco's home ownership is still really low. And when, I, when I'm saying Waco, I'm talking about Waco proper. I'm not talking about the suburbs, you know, just Waco proper. Um, and so at one time, we had more home ownership. And that's still a lot of home ownership in the Carver Park addition. But now these people are dying off and their children, you know, are getting their property, but they don't want it. They're not moving to East Waco. So now the city is getting a lot of that, that property, which they don't want either. But so you got a lot of boarded up houses and that type of thing. But in the day, that was a very, very, very um, well manicured, you know. I, I remember when my grandparents and people in the community actually had their streets paid. You know, it was not something that the city did. They worked and got a plan together and said, we're going to pave our streets. So everybody had to pay X number of dollars, you know, to get their street paving for the people that didn't have it. Other people put it in for it. So, you know, what I really yeah. remember about East Quaco a lot is the is the community. You know, how people really cared about each other. Um, we had gardens. And for most of the part, most people had either farms or they had land in the, in the country where they raised, you know, cattle hogs and stuff like that. So I tell people all the time, when you think about the history of East Waco, and I know Slim, when you were going around doing interviews, you have people give you all these words. And one of the things that I always thought about was community, because we really did have what we call true community back when I was a kid in East Waco. There was a lot of uh, uh, hope, a lot of people working together, uh, a lot of people making sure that everybody had, you know, uh, I remember my grandmother used to tell me, she would say, take this corn and take it up the street to Miss So-and-so and bring back those peas, you know, and that's kind of the way people did back during the day. You know, as a, as a young girl growing up in East Waco, I was never hungry, like some of the kids that are over there now, um, because we grew everything that we ate. At the age of nine, I could make pies and cakes and whatever, because if we got anything sweet, we had to bake it. And that's what we did. We made it. You know, we had, we had plenty of flour. You know, all and all of that. So if you want some sweet, you bake it. So, you know, that's the one thing that I want to really folk, uh, talk about is the community. How strong the community was and how strong the character, 
you know, in those communities who are. Because when I look at the kids that I that I deal with every day, most of them don't have any character skills at all, you know. Um, I just remember my grandmother would always say, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, you know, make an honest day living, you know, always do what's right, you know. I mean, I heard that almost every day. I mean, it was sometimes like, okay, got it, heard that. You know, but, you know, now I see why, you know, that was being said because it was embedded in me. But then, let's, let's talk about, the, so we talked about the community. Uh, we talked about Paul Quinn. And what really happened with Paul Quinn was um, when TSTC and uh, Baylor, and who else was here then, really became more racially integrated, you know, and same thing, <laughs> the community with the schools. Um, it really put a lot of pressure on Paul Quinn, you know, because it was predominantly uh, African-American, you know, college. And to the point that they almost had to close. And they did eventually close about 10 years after that. But um, it kind of really put a damper on the community for its teachers are concerned because we talk about that now. And what I'm trying to do is talk about the history but also bring it forward so you can see how it's still affecting, you know, the culture today. Um, when Paul Quinn left, we really stopped getting a lot of teachers. And I tell you, you know, we turned out a lot of teachers out of Paul Quinn. And, even now, when I think about Carver, 49% uh, African-American, 49% um, Hispanic. And on our campus, I think we have an African-American principal, an African-American coach. We have like four or five women teachers, African-American, but we don't have, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you, Miss, uh, because I don't think there's too many more. I don't, we don't, other than our coach, there's no African-American men. But we have 49% African-American students and 49% Hispanic. And it's hard. It's really hard. There's, there's a big cultural gap. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, thinking about what we're going to do, how, what we're gonna, how we're going to hire people, going like to the metropolis, you know, trying to pull teachers from different areas or whatever, but it's, it's really been hard. But that's mainly because, like I said, after Paul Quinn closed down, and, you know, that's where a lot of our African-Americans teachers came from, you know, so now we're still looking at that same problem here in Waco. Um, and I'm of a firm belief that kids can learn from anybody. You don't have to be an African-American to be a teacher to teach a child. I don't, I don't believe that. I really don't. But I do know that there are cultural differences. And I do know that sometimes people don't understand where these kids are coming from. When they come home to, from, from home to school every day, uh, people have, that have never lived in those type of environments don't know what those kids face and what they deal with every day before they get to school. <laughs> so that's, that's the, the piece that you know, I wanted to bring that out. Uh, also, there were a lot of prominent African Americans um, in Waco back in the day, like I said, you know, when I was a kid, I could see the doctors, uh, Dr. Uh, Rafford, he has a book called um, African American Heritage uh, in Waco. It's a very, very good book if anybody wants to pick that up and read it because it talks about how, um, like I said, for myself and other young people in the community at that time, how um, the professionals really encouraged and helped the students become uh, have a mindset to be uh, professional, you know, to encourage them to, to set a standard that, that we could see and that we could follow, you know, hard after. Um, 
also far as in, infrastructure is concerned, you know, I, I talked about, you know, the grocery stores and uh, the filling stations and all of that. Um, there were also a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, you know, people back in the day, they felt like, you know, if they didn't have like a, a, a college education or whatever, you know, they could open up, you know, businesses and stuff. And even on Am Street, there were a lot of entrepreneurs on Am Street, whether it was beauty shops, barbershops, or clothing stores, or what have you. Also on Am Street was uh, one big store was Kessner's. Um, I'm trying to think of um, flower shops. And, you know, all kinds of businesses, you know, that, that people could just go. We didn't have to drive across town, you know, to go to the store or to get some of the things we need. Drugstore. Rexall Drugstore used to be right there on Am Street. So a lot of, a lot of different infrastructure. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring out today, too, was that when there uh, is um, a lack of culture, and, and a lot of times there is a lack of culture, like uh, urban renewal was like a, a government grant that came through Waco. And I, I'm not going to go into that, because that's a huge thing to talk about. But if you want to look it up, it's, it's out there. Um, a lot of people were displaced during that time, during the urban renewal. Uh, like the strong communities that I'm talking about, you know, that, that they had come in and they had built. And even uh, down in South Waco, down off of 2nd Street, where a lot of the um, Hispanic population had done the same thing. Uh, when the federal grant came in, it, it moved a lot of people around. People thought that they were getting a better deal, but in the long run, they didn't get a better deal. So if you talk to anybody about the history of uh, Waco right now, they always bring up the urban renewal. And so when I came back home, I asked my grandmother about it. I said, what happened? Because I was gone. What happened with urban renewal? She said, uh, it just, you know, displaced a lot of people. People lost their property. They thought they were getting a better deal, and they didn't. And so uh, that's, a, that's a part of our history that people talk about now that they can't seem to forget it. You know, I'm one of those people that, okay, that is in the past. It, it might have been wrong, but... How do we get past that, you know, and move on? Um, another thing that I want to mention, and a lot of you probably know about this, is the, um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's was so connected to, like East Waco connected to downtown, the bridge, you know, it's like go across the bridge and back over here and be right in East Waco, just like now, you know, be right in East Waco. Uh, was the Waco Horror, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard about that, um, with Jesse Washington and his family. And just recently, uh, Mayor Mac Malcolm Duncan um, did an open proclamation here in Waco to ask that, that family to forgive our city, you know, for that uh, horrendous act. And uh, I, I thought it was, I was there, and I thought it was one of the most uh, beautiful ceremonies. Some of Jesse Washington's uh, and, uh, people were there, and they did a uh, the mayor did a proclamation, and then Jesse's family did like a forgiveness thing, and then they prayed, and it was it was really really beautiful um, ceremony. And so that's that's the type of thing that I believe has to happen with history, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, we celebrate the good because it's something that we want to remember. The bad, we we can't go back and erase it, but we can definitely deal with it. And on both sides, you know, ask for repentance and forgiveness and, and move forward. And I think that's the best thing to do. 
uh, another thing about um, East Waco history was the um, the celebration of like holidays and stuff. One people now we don't even do Juneteenth. I don't know if a lot of people know what that is, but we celebrate Juneteenth, and uh, it was such a big thing in our communities that uh, I mean, for miles, people. Uh, would come. I mean, you know, and you didn't have to be a part of the family. And that's another thing that I, I loved about Waco. Um, I was just talking with her a few minutes ago because whether you lived in East Waco, you know, and people say, you know, you call it the hood. Uh, I told somebody, I said, well, you know, that's just a short definition for neighborhood. You know, that's exactly what it is. Uh, when I ran for city council back in 2010, uh, my campaign slogan was, let's put the neighbor back in the hood. Because you know what? That's what we need. We need the neighbor, you know, back in the hood. Everybody, because that's what I saw as a kid growing up. You know, I saw the neighbor. I saw the community. I saw people working together and partnering together to make the community be the strong, you know, community that it needs to be. Um, the other thing is when you look at uh, East Waco, as a kid, when I was growing up, it was predominantly African-American. Uh, and it still is, you know, hasn't much changed, you know, with that. Uh, we still have a few other ethnosis over there, but it's not uh, really diverse. So it's still about the same. But when you think about that uh, cultural, like I, I was talking about the history, even in the school where I am right now, I say the same thing, like I was talking about how the band, you know, was disseminated and, you know, and then our cheerleaders and our our drill team and all that, you know, they couldn't go across town and be a part of those other drill teams. And not not right away. I mean, now, you know, that has changed quite a bit. But back then, in the history, that didn't happen, you know, right away. But I see that even still today, that's what I'm saying, that we really have to think about how we will uh, change history. How will we rewrite, you know, history? Um, again, at the school where I'm at, 49% Hispanic, 49% African American. Um, I asked the choir director uh, the other day, I was like, hey, can we sing what kind of, can we sing some other kind of music? Can we do something different? You know, can we do some gospel? Can we do some rap? You know, can we do some songs in Spanish? You know, uh, we need to do something with these kids when it comes to dance. You know, can we do some mariachi? You know, can we do something different? These kids need to know their culture. You know, we got all these kids and they're, they're kind of like, they don't know how to assimilate because they it's not their culture you know what I'm saying and so you know when you look at that and you think about history how do how do we change that how do we well here I am at that school saying you know can we do these things can we bring these things into the community so our children can understand who they are that's the that's the, the, the part of the thing about history if you don't know your history if you don't know where you come from it's kind of hard and that has been a huge thing for uh, the history of people in, in East Waco, you know, and then after we did come together and have this strong culture and this strong history, and then you're disseminated, you know, and you, you sent across town or somewhere else and you lose all of that, so then how do you start over? You know, how do you start over? So one of the things that I want to talk about too is what we see today versus the, the, the past was I said that most people in the community, most of them were workers. Everybody had a job. That's the one thing that you saw back in the day. You didn't see a lot of people like you do today, you know, unemployed, you know, not working. Um, and I'll share this. I tell my story. 
my grandfather uh, had about probably about a third grade education, and my grandmother about the same. Uh, but my grandfather worked for the city water department for 35 years and then retired. But because he could learn a skill, anybody can learn a skill. But the, 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 the thing about the history of Waco is people back then were very, very proud about who they were. You know, I also tell my story about my grandfather because uh, when I was a kid, I took my lunch to school every day. And I was happy because I thought I was special because I got to take my lunch to school every day because I get to take what I want to take. I don't have to eat cafeteria food. <laughs> and I can put whatever I want to put in my lunch kit. So, you know, whether I made it or baked it or whatever, I can take it to school. Not knowing that, you know, my grandfather probably couldn't afford to pay for me to get a hot lunch. I never knew that as a kid. That's another thing that I love about the history of the Swaco. If you were poor, no one told you you were poor. And we never heard that. I never knew. I, I didn't know that I grew up poor until I was taking economics and stuff. In, in, in high school. When I started looking at the uh, poverty rates and when I started looking at the uh, income levels and all that, I mean, reading in the book and I was like, oh my God, you're poor. You know, but I, I, never, I never knew that. I never knew that. That's one thing that I really loved about East Wake, growing up at East Waco, is the fact that we were we never looked at ourselves as being poor. We were very, we felt like we were very strong. You know, we had a strong community. Um, we were always together, there was such a unity, you know, and for me to not even know that, but now the kids that I'm with every day, you know, they already know, they know they live in poverty, they, they're told that all the time, you know, low-income neighborhood, this is what they call them, you know, some these low-income kids or whatever, you know, when I think about the history of East Waco, I've never heard that word, as a, as a young kid growing up in that community, I never heard that word. Um, so just to, to think about how do we change and rewrite history, like I said, changing the mindset of um, the younger generation, uh, who they really are, you know. And I'm just going to just throw this in here. <laughs> um, at school every day, I tell those kids, you know what, you were fearfully and wonderfully made, and God has a destiny and purpose for your life. And, you know, they need to hear that. They need to know that they're not a mistake, you know, because there's a lot of here. You're not a mistake, you know, that God didn't uh, create you as a mistake. You are here because He purposed for you to be here. He has a plan and purpose for your life. Regardless of how you got here, you know, whether single, single parent mom or, you know, whatever happened in your family, you do have a destiny and a purpose, you know, for your life. So, talked about school, talked about Harvard, talked about um, Paul Quinn, talked about employers. Um, culture. I think the other thing um, that I'll talk about is for voice history is concerned and it's still the same way. There's such a, a segregation of the church and it was back then too. Um, I grew up in a little Baptist church. My grandmother was still going to that church when she died and uh, that's another reason we stayed in this Waco because <laughs> she wanted to continue to go to the church. Um, I try, I'm trying to remember as a kid growing up um, how things were as far as churches were concerned. I don't think there was like um, any problems with, you know, uh, fellowshipping together. It just didn't happen. You know, it was just something that didn't happen. There were just the dividing lines, you know. Uh, I think that has changed quite a bit, you know, over the years, but not as much. 
as compared to uh, other places. Um, I think that's about all I'm thinking about. <laughs> um, might be forgetting something, but I think so. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. How did, how did uh, Carter go from being in La Vega mm -hmm. to being with Wayclass. And now they're changing again, right? Because they're going with uh, Transformation Wake Up. Right. Mm -hmm. now, so there's another shift. And so that's kind of like the past was they're part of La Vega and they did better, not right. necessarily because they're in La Vega. Right. And then, but then how did that happen? I mean, do you have any idea? Well, yeah, it started with the integration. So I was also part of the integration. Yes, I'm part of the integration because, like I said, we were under La Vega all the way through 69. And I want to say 72. I'm almost sure it's 70. I think 71 is when they actually started integrating. And when they started integrating, because La Vega didn't have, you know, that many schools. We were the only African-American schools in La Vega Independent School District. So they had to start sending kids to schools that was in Waco ISD. And that's how they came up on Waco ISD. And now... The transformation, I'm glad to talk about that because I actually work under the transformation zone in my position, even though I'm at Carver. But Carver is a transformation zone school. Right. And that's because, uh, some of you might not know too, that uh, there were five schools that were slated to be closed by TEA. And the only way that we were able to keep those schools open was to create the charter, which is now Transformation Waco, which is supposed to be an in-district of Waco ISD. It's real weird. Um, it was all really um, brought up by Prosper Waco serving mm -hmm. that board too and it was really hard for us to get TA invited to that but they finally did and we're still under the gun because we still got to keep scores up we still got to keep our attendance up and right now we're struggling to call the time so thank you any other questions mm -hmm. so what would you say is some of the things that are currently going on right now um, maybe at Carver and your um, from rest, Restoration Haven, what you're seeing there, that just breaks your heart. The one thing that really breaks my heart is that we just really need to work with our parents. And I don't know if it's because parents are so young now, you know what I'm saying? I go to a lot of homes in my position. Uh, I went to home the other day to take a look. Uh, well, we call it DAP, but it's alternative school packet. And there was no furniture. I mean, I opened the door, laid open the door, and I could look straight through. There was no living room furniture. There was nothing in the kitchen but the stove and refrigerator. I couldn't see the bedrooms, but if there's nothing in the living room and you know the kitchen, you can imagine what it looks like in the bedroom. That breaks my heart because kids, kids deserve more than that. You know, that's the one thing that really, really breaks my heart. And when I'm at school and I hear teachers yelling and screaming and saying mean things to these kids, you know, and they don't know that these kids, what they're dealing with, you know, every day. It just, it really breaks my heart. Um, and not every teacher's like that. I'm not saying that because we have some good teachers. We have, we have some teachers that give 100% plus more. And if they could, they probably take some of these kids home with them just like me. So, I mean, uh, but that's one thing that breaks my heart. And the other thing is just the condition that these kids live in. You know, uh, I just feel like something has to be done. 
you know, whether it's through housing, you know, or the city of Waco. I mean, something has to be done. And, I mean, we're talking about mold. You know, all these bad living conditions. A lot of our kids have asthma. Well, this is why. That's what they breathe in every day, you know. It's hot in there. You know, because my office is up there. Mm-hmm. And when there's no it's cement walls, and when, that, when that air is off, it is hot in there. I, I can go home. You know, I can leave my office and go home, but they can't. So it's like when the air is out, it's just unbearable in those uh, apartments. So those kind of things that break my heart. Yes. Another question. You talked a lot about community. Was your experience growing mm-hmm. up in East Waco? I'm kind of curious about two things. What do you think? The, how did that change? Like, what what might have prompted a lot of those changes you're seeing? And in what ways are you still seeing communities here in East Waco? In some of those same ways you had grown up. I think the thing that really prompted it is, like I said, when we start losing like uh, the professional people out of the community. Uh, when you start losing professional people, you start losing home ownership. When you lose home ownership, you lose your tax base. So the city is not really trying to put a lot of money in there because there's no income generate being generated. You know, and then the other thing too is like I said, uh, a lot of the older people, you know, are deceased and have died off. And you know, like with me, I left because, you know, so I was the next generation. I was like, I'm out of here. You know, and so a lot of people did that. You know, so then. You don't have anything now but the younger generation, you know, living there who for three to four generations now have just lived in poverty. They, they don't even know what it looks like to be out of poverty. That's why we do a lot of the programs and stuff that we do is to expose these kids to a life outside of what they see every day so they can get a glimpse of hope. Remember I talked about how I can look out and I can aspire to be any professional that I wanted to be because it's right in front of me, but they don't have that. And then you say, how do I still see community? Yeah, what ways do you still see that same sense of community that you saw growing up? It's only, I I see it in the older people, you know, like the grandparents and stuff that are still there, and through a lot of organizations, you know, uh, nonprofits, you know, who come in there and still are trying to, you know, bring the community up and help the community, you know, pull pull themselves up, you know, to a place. Because even with me doing Restoration Haven, I've been over there like 10, 12, 12 years now. Uh, a lot of people have moved out of there. A lot of people have actually, you know, to TSDC or MCC, you know, got some type of certificate, some type of trade. They've moved their families, you know, they're moving out and they're trying to, you know, go to where community is, you know. Other than that, it's, it's really kind of hard. And the churches, you know, there are still churches in the community that are trying to, you know, help the community, but not too many. You know, um, because like I said, you know, we had professionals, but we also had those jobs for non-professionals like General Time Rubber, you know, Marathon Battery, Plantation Foods was back, they was the uh, the turkey plant, chicken plant, which now we have Pilgrim Pride and Sanderson Farm. But other than that, there's really not a lot of jobs for people who are not professional. So where are we going to get those jobs from, you know? No, I'm not sure if there's a factor, but mass incarceration, when you have, mm-hmm. if you have a felony record, right. you can't get a job, you can't get 
uh, any social welfare benefit. You can't get uh, public housing. And so I know in my context at La Vega, I've met a couple of families that are in really deep poverty. And there's very little they can do. And a lot of them has, a lot of it has to do with drugs, the war on drugs, and you have people that are addicted to a drug and end up going to prison, they have federal, now, and but they have children. And, and so I think, I don't know how much that it is, or why, why, but it's, it's pretty it's wide. I see a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of parents that have been incarcerated or are incarcerated. I had a uh, family; um, they were married, and you don't see that too often in in the style of Maxine. You know, people live together, but there are some people who are actually married. And I, I really tried to work with this couple as much as I could because um, he did. He got incarcerated, and she was pregnant when he left. So when he got out, he couldn't live in housing. They were married. But they can't live in the same. But they can't live in the same place because he's a felon. Because he's an ex-felon, and so she called me, and I was like, "Oh my God!" So we went to housing, and we just went everywhere we could go to try to see, you know. So he was living with his mom, and she was still staying and still Maxie, and she had the baby, and uh, it's it's really hard like that, you know. And then, like he says, you know, when you come back and you have a record, it's hard to find a job. But I will say, because I always put the positive out there, the city of Waco has definitely made an effort to hire its felons. It depends on what your record is. So, because, you know, we've had a lot of meetings to talk about, you know, people not being able to come from prison and have a second chance and get a job. So the city said, okay, then let's do something about that. So I know they're one of the employers uh, that will hire people. It just depends on what the, what the, um, the charge was. But that is, that is, I'm glad you said that, because that, that is a huge problem when it comes to employment. But just to get perspective, what was it, 40 years ago we had 300,000 people in prison. Mm -hmm. Today we have almost 3 million yep. in prison and 7 million in the justice system in parole. And a lot of them are for smoking pot or writing bad checks. I heard of one case where a woman was in prison for 10 years for writing a bad check for less than 100. And the other thing, too, I'm so glad you brought this up. Historically, I know in East Waco, I'm just talking about that. Historically, women didn't go to prison. When I was a kid growing up, a woman had to almost murder somebody to go to prison. She just didn't go to prison. Uh, men went to prison. But now women are going at a much higher rate, and a lot of times it's because they're taking cases <laughs> for a baby daddy or somebody because they don't want them to go back. Because you know how to go so many times. Like they just enhance your charges and then you go some some people even get life, you know, because they keep offending. But that's that's one of the huge problems with um, employment. And we were talking about that at one of our city meetings about what other type of jobs other than because think about it now. General time rubber, you know, marathon batteries, plantation I mean we had all those jobs for people who didn't have skill set or who didn't finish high school. Now we have McDonald's and Whataburger. And you know, back then we didn't have those chains because people cooked. <laughs> but you know, things have just evolved, you know, so this is where we are, you know, economically, you know. Not just our city, that's across the nation, you know, this is where we are. But you know, we talk about that too 
because a lot of I think a lot of people in here went to Baylor. We talked about that at uh, one of our Baylor meetings. Uh, how do we retain Baylor students? You know, in Waco, we're not going to stay here if they can't get a good job. I don't blame them. You know, so we got to do something to try to retain some of them here to be young families and you know build Waco. But we got to have the the jobs, the employment, to keep them here. So I think this Paul Quinn has a history with AME Church, is that right? Yes. So when they, moved, they moved to Dallas. Yes. And they were, so and I worked with them on international things, so this is gonna come from a different angle on other things. But this, they uh, is is that relationship just in the past or do they say, Hey, we have a history with Waco where there's still are there students here that still you know, is there an existing relationship with Paul Quinn? Because I think they have a satellite campus in Plano now. Yeah, they do. And I think that, um, you know, like we talk about alumni. Right. Uh, I don't really think that. I have never heard anybody. I don't know this because I didn't go there. Like but they're recruiting here? Or yeah. Here. Well, now, because I met a, a, one of the young ladies. Uh, she used to work at TSDC, and now she's at Paul Penn in Dallas. And she was saying that they were trying to recruit, you know, and do some recruiting here, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Might be a good like possible satellite campus to like rekindle that. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I just was curious because I know that there's the AMG AME Church, for example, mm -hmm. is was heavily involved with that historically, and then the HBC. There's been a push to for HBCU students. At least this is the realm I work in. I'm trying to get HBCU students to to get international experience, right? Um, for because of elevating the profile of the school, and I know Paul Quinn has grown in recent years, but it's also um, one of the, I think it's still, it's working school as well. You work through, you work your way through tuition, is that right? Uh, I don't know. And stuff like that, so it's been, um, on the international side, they work with the art. So I just was kind of curious, because on the community thing, because it's, to your point, exactly on Baylor students, we, I mean, a lot of schools, at least, State schools that I'm familiar with will try to retain as many students. Right, students. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say today are some of the biggest resources or assets in the East Waco community that you see? I would say organizations, for one thing, like people who really have a heart to see this community change, like, say, you've been successful, Restoration Haven. Mosaic, <laughs> um, because it's going to take that. It's going to take people really reaching in, you know what I'm saying, and helping these people really pull themselves up, you know, because it's hopelessness. I mean, for 10 years, I've seen just pure hopelessness, especially for the younger generation. I see kids every day who are just hopeless. It's like, you know, they can't see anything except what they see every day, and they've seen that for like two to three generations. If their grandmother and their mother and that's them, it's like, okay, if they didn't get out, how am I going to get out? You know, so I would say, you know, organizations, um, there is still some uh, community. You know, there are still some people who really want to see the community change. And I really will say this, that the city really is now trying to focus on, you know, what we can do, whether it's through education, if it's through employment, or if it's through uh, financial security, you know, uh, I'm on the board with Prosper Waco, 
And so we have we have those five objectives, and we're really, really trying with everything within us to try to really pull those areas together and get people involved, you know, in those areas so we can really see the city change. How receptive with the development, especially like you're seeing along Elm Street, how receptive are like the people of East Waco with the new development, or how would they like for that to look? I guess like what's your perspective on the things that are moving in? To be perfectly honest, they're not happy. <laughs> they're not happy, and they feel like they feel like uh, people are coming in, taking over, or taking you know their community, their property, you know, or whatever. Just recently, probably like three or four months ago, there's this big article about the the, fit, the fitness center right there that they felt like the people came in, took their building, and it was it was ugliness. So they're they're, they're not happy. How would how would they like for development to come about? I guess for yeah, what does that look like? You mean what they want want there? Yes. How would they like? For, yeah. I don't know, but this is the one thing that I will say. Um, I teach a class at Baylor that's um, community service, that's a community service class. And one of the things that I always tell my students, if you're going to be a servant leader, the best thing that you can do is find out what the people want that you're going to serve. Because if you don't, then you're going to go, you, if you go in with this wonderful plan, like we're going to do it, and then you know, it's going to be wonderful, they're not going to buy into that. And a lot of times we spend a lot of money, a lot of effort, you know, doing things that they don't really need or they don't want, you know, so the, the key is to involve them. You know, we always do the SWOT analysis. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? You know, what are your options? What are your threats? What You have to ask the people that you're serving, you know, what is it that you want? And get their buy-in and get them to work with you. You know, because when I'm gone, you know, whether I'm there for a month, a year, or whatever, I want them to have leaders there that can lead in that community and be able to keep whatever movement we have going, going. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's actually, you led right into what I wanted to ask, it's kind of more of a question to the, our pastors. So for us to make a dent on any of that, um, a lot of things to try to make a dent on. Uh, what's our process to go about uh, thinking about the strategy? I mean, you kind of spoke to that process, but I mean, when we're, I mean, not, you don't have to answer it all now, right? Like, here it is, but I'm saying, yeah. when we hear that, it kind of sounds like, Great, but so we have to focus on something. So what's that yeah. process look like? So I, I I would say what we've been trying to communicate for a while now is we want to be in the community and with the community, um, working alongside of it and getting to know it and building relationships um, first. Um, because I think if any of us have ever been on a mission trip, there is that time when. It, you know the community you're serving knows you're serving them. Um, and even if at the Eastern East Waco, uh, there's times where like, you, you, I, you can tell it's like, hey, I'm giving this to you, versus like, hey, friend. Um, you know, and so I want it, what I want for us to do and is this is a long haul. This is a, a decision that's not going to be a, hey, we're in, and we're going to serve for a once a year or um, once a month. Uh, this is no, more like being there. This is a 
shop here. <laughs> uh, take walks in East Waco. Um, prayer walks. Um, so what? Some some of the mission that we we will talk about. Um, I was going to do a test at the end. I'll hijack it now since the question was asked. Um, I've given you guys what our mission was. Let's see if anyone remembers it. The first one was to adore Christ. Then it was to. Uh, we haven't tied it, so it's okay. <laughs> but apply the gospel, and then what? Act with justice and mercy. Yes, good, good, good. Act with justice and mercy. And very good, very good. And so to understand what that means, adoring Christ is, is what we want to be doing in worship. Adoring Christ and coming together in worship. And that's what, it, that's what we are all built and longing for, is to, to be in worship with Christ. Um, and then to apply that gospel, and we're going to be looking at that in different ways um, through like uh, men's and women's uh, discipleship groups. Um, and we think sometimes that might have a, foster a better opportunity for you to do things when it's men's and women's and we'll do things together, obviously. But then that act with mercy and justice, we're going to give you some specific ways to walk through that. And some of that will be with Restoration Haven. Some of that will be with uh, book clubs, volunteering a half hour a week at, at Heinz um, or Carver and being a mentor at Carver, which is what we, we've heard that there's a great need for. Um, trying to find ways that are just natural ways of just getting to know these schools and then getting to know families without it being like, let me serve, more just, hey, let's read a book together. Um, and when that happens, once people know that we love them first, then I think we can invite them to the church. Because um, I think, I've said this before, um, Tim, there's a quote from a guy named Tim Keller, he says, when the world sees us doing evangelism, they see us recruiting. But when they see us doing acts of mercy, they see the love of God. And so I think if we can lead with some of that, and then we kind of invite, say, hey, would you join us in worship? I think it's a little more natural. But some of these natural ways, as... Um, Shirley, I was like, as mercy, as mercy, Shirley said, uh, is, is some of these uh, just natural avenues that are already happening right now. Um, I like being there. I mean, that's, that's we are a lot of. Yeah. Just be there? Yeah, being there. Just being there. I like that. Al, sorry. Oh. Yeah, I think we're in the position of building trust. Because there's no reason why the people of this community should trust us, you know. So doing what you were saying without being paternalistic about it uh, would probably be somewhat helpful. I just, we we heard this, uh, I can remember only her first name, Fiona. She's with Creative Waco. Learn 
that are non-threatening, you know, like gardening, or, you know, just providing space for people to have their own garden, things like that. But I, I was going to ask you if you see a divide between the Hispanic and the black community. Is there any awareness? Mm, not that I know of, you know, especially at school. I don't see it. because I'm more family support. But um, I haven't seen that, you know what I'm saying, uh, on campus. Uh, because we got about half and half, you know what I'm saying? So, But what you just said, though, and the question he asked, um, relationship is the key. Yes. And what I found out uh, was it's through the children. Because when I first went to uh, Estella Maxi, and that was in 2007, I was not accepted. And I was really surprised because I was in a totally African-American community, mm -hmm. and I was African-American, and I was like, yeah, didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was walking the streets and handing out flyers, so they were looking at me throwing flyers on the ground, and I was like, really? Mm -hmm. uh, it was hard. It was really, really hard. Uh, now that I've been over there, everybody knows me. <laughs> they know me surely, you know, so. Uh, but what I did, I started dealing with the kids. I started doing things with the kids. And so when when you start dealing with people's kids and their kids begin to like you and build a relationship with you, eventually those parents will come around. So then when we started going places and I had to go get parent permission, so let's fill out. And I said, oh, I've been working with your child. And they're like, yeah, this is Miss Shirley. And, I, and now we just have that relationship. But my parents told me from the beginning, I they said it is a trust issue. They were like, we didn't know you were you don't look like us, you didn't act like us, and we didn't know if you were undercover, you know, whatever, you know, or, and I was like, oh, okay, because I didn't know why, you know, they were doing that from the beginning, but yeah, so now we've built that uh, secret agent, so yeah. relationship is the key, and it could be through, like you said, through their children, reading at the school, or uh, even this art apprentice thing, we're, we're trying to do that at I mean, so just interacting, you know, till we can get them to trust us. One of the things that she's doing is the artists are listening to the kids and they build the art off of the children's idea. You know, I, I love it. Yeah. I think it's awesome. Yeah, so my question, I also won't get far um, but it's like that balance between wanting kids to like be part of the community because it's like I know I want them to like see beyond you and I know we've talked about being like leave Waco, like if you have the opportunity to go to school outside of Waco, like even like you and Desiree's story, like he came back, but like just how do you like, I know when I encourage my students and I'm like, like this earth is bigger than like your block, you know and this earth is bigger than just Waco and wanting to encourage them to like go beyond or like you know, I had a kid the other day be like, one day I want to call Australia and I'm like, that's possible, like look at this, look at this, look at this, you know with, with an eighth grade when he goes to high school, but how do you balance that with also being like, you know, come back and like that retention of just being like, I want you to be included in this as well. And like, I just think it's so hard because it's like, I never want the leave to be like, oh, because it's bad you and because like, you know, it's bigger, but it's like, I want you to go see that it's bigger and then bring the bigness back, you know? And like, so it's like, how do you like articulate that? I don't know, like you've been doing this way longer than I have and you have incredible stories with kids than I've heard. 
and just I know that's hard. Well, you know, it's it's just, it's just so strange you said that. I had a student ask me last week. She was like, "Why does everybody say we have to leave and get out of here?" Mm-hmm. It, was, it was Mary Bonner. Oh, <laughs> she's right anyway. You know, yeah. she's just top. Um, and I told her, I said, well, it has a lot to do with history and what people have said in the past. Because that's why I left. Because that's what mm-hmm. I was told. Yeah. You know, if you're going to make it, you're going to have to get out of Waco. But, you know, the province, the thing I said, the province, the province of God. You know, I had no plans of ever coming back to Waco. I was on 35 years. <coughs> but I feel like, you know, we can tell kids about that too. You know, wherever you're supposed to be, this where you'll be. Mm-hmm. If you live your life according to the plans of God. Because I had yeah. no intentions of ever coming back here. But when my grandfather died, I thought that's why I was coming back. Mm-hmm. But that was not why I was coming back. God had other plans for me. So, you know, and then I do try to tell kids, you know, some, some kids will stay here. And they will do well, you know, here. But I have a young guy that I work with. He's the only person out of six kids in his family that graduated from high school. And he's went off to school and got his bachelor's. called me before he came back. He's like, I don't know if I should come back. I'm really, you know, nervous about coming back. And he's working for the Salvation Army now. Yeah, that's the Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, God is good, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you t- tell them that, you know, their lives are orchestrated, you know, by him. Yeah. So, if it's meant for you to come back and do what you need to do here, I'm a living witness of that. I'm back here. Mm-hmm. And I really mm-hmm. have no intention accessible as higher education. I like I'm from Tennessee and so we have free community college for like if you graduate from high school. Free community college. Mm-hmm. For anyone that graduates from high school so I didn't know if Texas has anything along those lines. No ma'am. But you know but a lot of kids who, who live yeah who live in the community where we are they are eligible for financial aid. Okay. But the struggle for our kids with financial aid is that their parents have done so much fraudulent, illegal stuff mm-hmm. that it affects them. Mm-hmm. I've been working with four girls right now that I've been trying to get an MCC, and the horror stories are just mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. The things that their parents have done. Because, you know, your parents' income now has to be a part of your whole financial aid mm-hmm. package. <laughs> and the parents, they mess it up for the kids. So mm-hmm. I have four girls right now that right now can't get in college because of that. Okay. Sorry. It's a lot. Anybody else? Cool. Everyone, let's give Shirley a round of applause. Thank you.